0: section ten of lives of the queens of england volume six by agnes and elizabeth strickland this librivox recording is in the public domain elizabeth chapter four part one while queen mary lay on her deathbed the greatest alarm had prevailed regarding the expected crisis a contemporary who watched closely the temper of the public thus describes the anxieties of the responsible part of the community the rich were fearful the wise careful the honestly disposed doubtful and he adds emphatically the discontented and desperate were joyful wishing for strife as the door for plunder all persons therefore who had anything to lose whatever their religious bias might be must have felt relief at the peaceful accession of elizabeth on the morning of the seventeenth of november parliament which was then sitting assembled betimes for the dispatch of business the demise of the crown was however only known in the palace before noon dr heath the archbishop of york and lord chancellor of england sent a message to the speaker of the house of commons requesting that he with the knights and burgesses of the nether house would without delay adjourn to the upper house to give their assents in a matter of the utmost importance when the commons were assembled in the house of lords silence being proclaimed lord chancellor heath addressed the united senate in these words the cause of your summons hither at this time is to signify to you that all the lords here present are certainly certified that god this morning hath called to his mercy our late sovereign lady queen mary which hap as it is most heavy and grievous to us so we have no less cause otherwise to rejoice with praise to almighty god for leaving us a true lawful and right inheritrix to the crown of this realm which is the lady elizabeth second daughter to our late sovereign of noble memory henry the eighth and sister to our said late queen of whose most lawful right entitled to the crown thanks be to god we need not doubt albeit the parliament that is the house of commons by the heavy accident of queen mary's death did dissolve yet as they had been elected to represent the common people of the realm and to deal for them in matters of state they could no way better discharge that trust than in joining with the lords in publishing the next succession to the crown wherefore the lords of this house have determined with your assents and consents to pass from hence into the palace, and there to proclaim the Lady Elizabeth, Queen of this realm, without any further tract of time. God save Queen Elizabeth, was the response of the Lords and Commons to the speech of their Lord Chancellor. Long may Queen Elizabeth reign over us. And so, adds our chronicle, was this Parliament dissolved by the act of God thus through the wisdom and patriotism of the lord chancellor of england was the title of queen elizabeth rendered indisputable for her first proclamation and recognition were rendered almost solemn acts of parliament it is scarcely possible but that heath must have foreseen his own doom and that of his religion of which he was at that moment with the exception of the expiring Pole, the ostensible head in england yet it is most evident that he preferred consulting the general good, by averting a civil war, to the benefit of his own particular class. It ought to be remembered that his conduct, at this crisis, secured the loyalty of the Catholics of England to Elizabeth. All the important acts of the United Houses of Parliament, respecting the recognition of Queen Elizabeth, were completed before the clock struck twelve, that 17th of November the lords with the heralds then entered the palace of westminster and directly before its hall door after several solemn soundings of trumpets the new queen was proclaimed elizabeth by the grace of god queen of england france and ireland and defender of the faith etc this etc hides an important historical fact namely that she was not then proclaimed supreme head of the church the young duke of norfolk as earl marshal accompanied by several bishops and nobles then went into the city where they met the lord mayor and civic authorities and the heralds proclaimed queen elizabeth at the cross of cheapside in the afternoon all the city bells rang bonfires were lighted ale and wine distributed and the populace invited to feast at tables put out at the doors of the rich citizens all signs of mourning for the deceased queen being entirely lost in the joy for the accession of her sister so passed the first day of the reign of elizabeth a day which came to cheer with hope a season of universal tribulation and misery for besides the inquisitorial cruelties of bonner which had proved plague sufficient to the london citizens it was a time of famine and of pestilence more universal than the plague which usually confined its ravages to great cities many thousands had in the autumn of fifteen fifty eight fallen victims to a fever called Aquatidian ague but which was doubtless a malignant typhus it had broken out in the harvest and carried off so many country people that the harvest rotted on the ground for want of hands great numbers of ecclesiastics had died of this fever thirteen bishops died in the course of four months and to this circumstance the facile change of religion which took place directly may partly be attributed cardinal pole lay in the agonies of death christopherson bishop of chichester and griffin bishop of rochester were either dying or dead while these important scenes were transacting in her senate and metropolis the new sovereign remained probably out of respect to her sister's memory in retirement at hatfield and the ceremony of her proclamation did not take place there till the nineteenth when it was performed before the gates of hatfield house in the same day and hour however in which her accession to the regal office was announced to her she entered upon the high and responsible duties of a vocation for which few princes possessed such eminent qualifications as herself the privy council repaired to the new queen at Hatfield, and there she sat in council for the first time with them, November 20th. Sir Thomas Perry, the cofferer of her household, Cave, Rogers, and Sir William Cecil, were sworn in as members. Her Majesty's address to Cecil on that occasion is a noble summary of the duties which he was expected to perform to his queen and country i give you this charge that you shall be of my privy council and content yourself to take pains for me and my realm this judgment i have of you that you will not be corrupted by any manner of gift and that you will be faithful to the state and that without respect to my private will you will give me that counsel which you think best and if you shall know anything necessary to be declared to me of secrecy you shall show it to myself only and assure yourself i will not fail to keep taciturnity therein and therefore herewith i charge you elizabeth left no room for doubt or speculation among the eager competitors for her favour as to the minister whom she intended to guide the helm of state for she accepted a note of advice from sir william cecil on the most urgent matters that required her attention that very day and appointed him her principal secretary of state the political tie that was then knit between cecil and his royal mistress though occasionally shaken was only broken by the death of that great statesman who was able to elevate or bend the powers of his acute intellect to all matters of government from measures that rendered england the arbitress of europe to the petty details of the milliner and tailor in sumptuary laws elizabeth commenced her progress to her metropolis november twenty third attended by a magnificent retinue of lords ladies and gentlemen and a prodigious concourse of people who poured out of london and its adjacent villages to behold and welcome her on the road to highgate she met a procession of the bishops who kneeled by the wayside and offered her their allegiance which was very graciously accepted she gave to every one of them her hand to kiss, except Bonner, Bishop of London. This exception she made to mark her abhorrence of his cruelty. The Lord Mayor and Aldermen, in their scarlet robes, likewise met her, and conducted her in great state to the Charter House, then the town residence of Lord North. Lord Chancellor Heath and the Earls of Derby and Shrewsbury received her there. She stayed at the Charter House five days, and sat in council every day. The queen left the charter-house on Monday, November 28th, to take formal possession of her royal fortress of the tower. Immense crowds assembled to greet her, and to gaze on her, both without and within the city gates, and a mighty retinue of the nobility of both sexes surrounded her. She ascended a rich chariot, and rode from the charter-house along the barbican, till she reached Cripplegate, where the lord mayor and city authorities received her then she mounted on horseback and entered the city in equestrian procession she was attired in a riding-dress of purple velvet with a scarf tied over her shoulder the sergeant-at-arms guarded her lord robert dudley as master of the horse rode next her thus early was this favourite exalted to the place he held so long the lord mayor preceded her carrying her sceptre and by his side rode garter king-at-arms lord pembroke rode directly before her majesty bearing the sword of state the queen rode along london wall then a regular fortification which was richly hung with tapestry and the city waits sounded loud music she rode up leadenhall street to gracechurch street called by our citizen journalist grasschurch street till she arrived at the blanche Chapelton at the entry of the Mart, or Market Lane, now the well-known Mark Lane, still the Corn Mart of England, though few who transact business there are aware of the extreme antiquity of their station. When the Queen arrived at the Blanche Chapelton, the Tower Guns began to herald her approach, and continued discharging all the while. She progressed down Mart Lane and Tower Street. She was greeted at various places by playing on regals, singing of children and speeches from the scholars of st paul's school the presence of the queen says an eye-witness gave life to all these solemnities she promptly answered all speeches made to her she graced every person either of dignity or office and so cheerfully noticed and accepted everything that in the judgment of the beholders these great honours were esteemed too mean for her personal worth deeply had elizabeth studied her metier du roi. before she had an opportunity of rehearsing her part fortunately for her the pride and presumption of youth had been a little tamed by early misfortune and stimulated by the inexorable necessity of self-defence she had been forced to look into human character and adapt her manners to her interest adversity had taught her the invaluable lesson embodied by wordsworth in these immortal words of friends however humble scorn not one as she entered the tower she majestically addressed those about her some said she have fallen from being princes of this land to be prisoners in this place i am raised from being a prisoner in this place to be prince of this land that dejection was a work of god's justice this advancement is a work of his mercy as they were to yield patience for the one, so I must bear myself to God thankful, and to men merciful for the other. It is said that she immediately went to her former prison apartment, where she fell on her knees, and offered up a loud and extempore prayer, in which she compared herself to Daniel in the lion's den, the words of which are in print, but bear very strongly the tone of Master Fox's composition she remained at the tower till the fifth of december holding privy councils of mighty import whose chief tenor was to ascertain what members of the late queen's catholic council would coalesce with her own party which were the remnants of the administration of edward the sixth cecil bacon sadler parr russell and the dudleys likewise to produce a modification between the church of edward the sixth and the henrican or anti-papal church of her father, which might claim to be a reformed church, with herself for its supreme head. On the 5th of December, the queen removed from the tower by water, and took up her abode at Somerset House, where a privy council was held daily for 15 days. Meantime, mass was said at the funerals of Queen Mary, of Cardinal Pole, and the two deceased bishops, whose obsequies were observed with all the rites of the ancient church elizabeth attended in person at her sister's burial and listened attentively to her funeral sermon preached by dr white bishop of winchester which was in latin the proverb that comparisons are odious was truly illustrated in this celebrated discourse which sir john harrington calls a black sermon it contained a biographical sketch of the late queen in which he mentioned with great praise her renunciation of church supremacy and repeated her observation that as st paul forbade women to speak in the church it was not fitting for the church to have a dumb head this was not very pleasant to elizabeth who had either just required the oath of supremacy to be administered or was agitating that matter in the privy council had dr white preached in english his sermon might have done her much mischief when the bishop described the grievous suffering of queen mary he fell into such a fit of weeping that his voice was choked for a time when he recovered himself he added that queen mary had left a sister a lady of great worth also whom they were bound to obey for he said melior est canis vivus leone mortuo elizabeth was too good a latinus not to fire at this elegant simile which declared that a living dog was better than a dead lion nor did the orator content himself with this courish comparison for he roundly asserted that the dead deserved more praise than the living for mary had chosen the better part as the bishop of winchester descended the pulpit stairs elizabeth ordered him under arrest he defied her majesty, and threatened her with excommunication, for which she cared not a rush. He was a prelate of austere but irreproachable manners, exceedingly desirous of testifying his opinions by a public martyrdom, which he did and said all in his power to obtain, but Elizabeth was, at that period of her life, too wise to indulge the zealous professors of the ancient faith, in any such wishes no author but the faithful and accurate Stowe has noted the important result of the daily deliberations held by the queen and her privy council at somerset house at this epoch he says the queen began then to put in practice that oath of supremacy which her father first ordained and amongst the many that refused that oath was my lord chancellor dr heath the queen having a good respect for him would not deprive him of his title but committed the custody of the great seal to nicholas bacon attorney of the wards who from that time was called lord keeper and exercised the authority of lord chancellor as confirmed by act of parliament this oath of supremacy was the test which sifted the council from those to whom the ancient faith was matter of conscience and those to whom it was a matter of worldly business the nonjurors withdrew either into captivity or country retirement of the catholic members of the privy council who remained lord william howard was her majesty's uncle and entire friend sackville was her cousin the earl of arundel her lover the marquis of winchester acted according to his characteristic description of his own policy by playing the part of the willow rather than the oak and from one of the most cruel of elizabeth's persecutors became at once the supplest of her instruments his example was imitated by others in this list, who, for the most part, appeared duly impressed with the spirit of the constitutional maxim. The crown takes away all defects. Elizabeth acted much as Mary did at her accession. She forbade anyone to preach without her license, and ostensibly left the rights of religion as she found them. But she, for a time, wholly locked up the famous pulpit of political sermons, St. Paul's Cross meantime mass was daily celebrated in the chapel royal and throughout the realm and the queen though well known to be a protestant conformed outwardly to the ceremonial observances of the church of rome it was desirable that the coronation of elizabeth should take place speedily in order that she might have the benefit of the oaths of allegiance of that part of the aristocracy who regarded oaths but a great obstacle arose there was no one to crown her the archbishop of canterbury was dead dr heath the archbishop of york positively refused to crown her as supreme head of the church there were but five or six catholic bishops surviving the pestilence and they all obstinately refused to perform the ceremony neither would they consecrate any bishops who were of a different way of thinking notwithstanding these signs and symptoms of approaching change all ceremonies were preparing for celebrating the Christmas festival, according to the rites of the ancient church. It was on the morning of Christmas Day that Elizabeth took the important step of personal secession from the mass. She appeared in her closet in great state, at the celebration of the morning service, surrounded by her ladies and officers. Oglethorpe, Bishop of Carlisle, was at the altar, preparing to officiate at High Mass, but when the gospel was concluded and every one expected that the queen would have made the usual offering she rose abruptly and with her whole retinue withdrew from the closet into her privy chamber which was strange to divers god be blessed for all his gifts as the narrator of this scene this withdrawal was to signify her disapprobation of the mass yet she proceeded softly and gradually till she ascertained the tone of the new parliament which had not yet met had her conduct on christmas morning excited general reprobation instead of approbation she could have laid her retreat and that of her personal attendants on her sudden indisposition when she found this step was well received she took another which was to issue a proclamation ordering that from the approaching new year's day the litany should with the epistle and gospel be said in english in her chapel and in all churches Further alteration was not at this time effected, because it was determined that Elizabeth should be crowned with the religious ceremonials of the Catholic Church, but her mind was occupied with other thoughts than religion, relative to her coronation. She sent her favorite, Robert Dudley, to consult her pet conjurer, Dr. D, to fix a lucky day for the ceremony. Such was the occupations of the great Elizabeth, in the first exercise of her regal power now dictating the mode of worship in her dominions now holding a consultation with a conjurer, elizabeth has been praised for her superiority to the superstitions of her age her frequent visits and close consultations with dr d throughout the chief part of her life are in lamentable contradiction to this panegyric he had as already noticed been prosecuted for telling the fortunes of elizabeth when princess and casting the nativity of queen mary to the infinite indignation of that queen he had it seems made a lucky guess as to the short duration of mary's life and truly it required no great powers of divination to do so such was the foundation of queen elizabeth's faith in this disreputable quack her confidential maid too blanche perry who was in all the secrets of her royal mistress before and after her accession was an avowed disciple of dr d and his pupil in alchemy and astrology the queen her privy council and dr d having agreed that sunday the fifteenth of january would be the most suitable day for her coronation she likewise appointed the preceding day saturday the fourteenth for her grand recognition procession through the city of london as this procession always commenced from the royal fortress of the tower the queen went thither in a state barge on the twelfth of january from the palace of westminster by water the lord-mayor and his city companies met her on the thames with their barges decked with banners of their crafts and mysteries the lord-mayor's own company namely the mercers had a bachelor's barge and an attendant foist with artillery shooting off lustily as they went with great and pleasant melody of instruments which played in a sweet and heavenly manner her majesty shot the bridge about two o'clock at the still of the ebb the lord mayor with the other barges following her and she landed at the private stairs on tower wharf the queen was occupied the next day by making knights of the bath she likewise created or restored five peers among others she made her mother's nephew sir henry carey lord hunsdon the recognition procession through the city of london was one of peculiar character marked not by any striking difference of parade or ceremony but by the constant drama acted between the new queen and the populace the manner and precedence of the line of march much resembled that previously described in the life of her sister queen mary elizabeth left the tower about two in the afternoon seated royally attired in a chariot covered with crimson velvet which had a canopy borne over it by knights one of whom was her illegitimate brother sir john Perrot. the queen says george ferrers who was an officer in the procession as she entered the city was received by the people with prayers welcomings cries and tender words and all signs which argue an earnest love of subjects towards their sovereign and the queen by holding up her hands and glad countenance to such as stood afar off and most tender language to those that stood nigh to her grace showed herself no less thankful to receive the people's good will than they to offer it to all that wished her well she gave thanks to such as bade god save her grace she said in return god save you all and added that she thanked them with all her heart wonderfully transported were the people with the loving answers and gestures of the queen the same she had displayed at her first progress from Hatfield. The city of London might, at that time, have been termed a stage, wherein was shown the spectacle of the noble-hearted queen's demeanor towards her most loving people, and the people's exceeding joy at beholding such a sovereign, and hearing so princely a voice. How many nosegays did her grace receive at poor women's hands? How often stayed she her chariot, when she saw any simple body approach to speak to her? a branch of rosemary given to her majesty with a supplication by a poor woman about fleet bridge was seen in her chariot when her grace came to westminster not without the wondering of such as knew the presenter and noted the queen's gracious reception and keeping the same an apt simile to the stage seems irresistibly to have taken possession of the brain of our worthy dramatist george ferrers in the midst of this pretty description of his liege lady's performance however her majesty adapted her part well to her audience a little coarsely in the matter of gesture perhaps as more casting up her eyes to heaven signing with her hands and moulding her features are described in the course of the narrative than are exactly consistent with the good taste of a gentlewoman in these days nevertheless her spectators were not very far advanced in civilization and she dexterously adapted her style of performance to their appreciation the pageants began in fenchurch street where a fair child in costly apparel was placed on a stage to welcome her majesty to the city the last verse of his greeting shall serve as a specimen of the rest welcome o queen as much as heart can think welcome again as much as tongue can tell welcome to joyous tongues and hearts that will not shrink god thee preserve we pray and wish thee ever well at the words of the last line the people gave a great shout repeating with one assent what the child had said and the queen's majesty thanked graciously both the city for her reception and the people for confirming the same here was noted the perpetual attentiveness in the queen's countenance while the child spake and a marvellous change in her look as the words touched either her or the people, so that her rejoicing visage declared that the words took their place in her mind. Thus Elizabeth, who steered her way so skillfully, till she attained the highest worldly prosperity, appreciated the full influence of the mute angel of attention. It is evident she knew how to listen, as well as to speak. At the upper end of Gracechurch Street, before the sign of the eagle, perhaps the spread eagle, the city had erected a gorgeous arch, beneath which was a stage, which stretched from one side of the street to the other. This was an historical pageant, representing the queen's immediate progenitors. There sat Elizabeth of York, in the midst of an immense white rose, whose petals formed elaborate furbelows round her. By her side was Henry the Seventh issuing out of a vast red rose, disposed in the same manner. The hands of the royal pair were locked together, and the wedding ring ostensibly displayed from the red and white roses proceeded a stem which reached up to a second stage occupied by henry the eighth issuing from a red and white rose and for the first time since her disgrace and execution was the effigy of the queen's mother anne boleyn represented by his side one branch sprang from this pair which mounted to a third stage where sat the effigy of queen elizabeth herself enthroned in royal majesty and the whole pageant was framed with wreaths of roses red and white by the time the queen had arrived before this quaint spectacle her loving lieges had become so outrageously noisy in their glee that there were all talkers and no hearers not a word that the child said who was appointed to explain the whole puppet-show and repeat some verses could be heard and the queen was forced to command and entreat silence her chariot had passed so far forward that she could not well view the said kings and queens but she ordered it to be backed yet scarcely could she see because the child who spoke was placed too much within besides it is well known elizabeth was near-sighted as well as her sister as she entered cornhill one of the knights who bore her canopy observed that an ancient citizen turned away and wept yonder is an alderman he said to the queen which weepeth and averteth his face i warrant it is for joy replied the queen a gracious interpretation as the narrator which makes the best of the doubtful in cheapside she smiled and being asked the reason she replied because i have just overheard one say in the crowd i remember old king harry the eighth the scriptural pageant was placed on a stage which spanned the entrance of sopers lane it represented the eight beatitudes prettily personified by beautiful children one of these little performers addressed to the queen the following lines which are a more favorable specimen than usual pageant poetry thou hast been eight times blessed o queen of worthy fame by meekness thy sprite when care did thee beset by mourning in thy grief by mildness in thy blame by hunger and by thirst when right thou couldst not get by mercy showed not proved by pureness of thine heart by seeking peace alway by persecution wrong therefore trust thou in god since he hath helped thy smart that as his promise is so he will make thee strong the people all responded to the wishes the little spokesman had uttered whom the queen most gently thanked for their loving good will many other pageants were displayed at all the old stations in cornhill and cheap with which our readers are tolerably familiar in preceding biographies these must we pass by unheeded so did not queen elizabeth who had some pertinent speech or at least some appropriate gesture ready for each thus when she encountered the governors and boys of christ Church hospital all the time she was listening to a speech from one of the scholars she sat with her eyes and hands cast up to heaven to the great edification of all beholders her reception of the grand allegory of time and truth at the little conduit in cheapside was more natural and pleasing she asked who an old man was who sat with his scythe and hourglass she was told time time she repeated and time has brought me here in this pageant she spied that truth held a bible in english ready for presentation to her and she bade sir john Perrot, the knight nearest to her who held up her canopy to step forward and receive it for her but she was informed that it was not the regular manner of presentation for it was to be let down into her chariot by a silken string she therefore told sir john perot to stay and at the proper crisis in some verses recited by truth the book descended and the queen received it in both hands kissed it clasped it to her bosom and thank the city for this present esteemed above all others she promised to read it diligently to the great comfort of the bystanders throughout the whole of cheapside from every penthouse and window hung banners and streamers and the rich carpets stuffs and cloth of gold tapestried the streets specimens of the great wealth of the stores within for cheapside was the principal location of the mercers and silk dealers in london at the upper end of this splendid thoroughfare were collected the city authorities in their gala dresses headed by their recorder master rinald Chomelli, who in the name of the lord mayor and the city of london begged her majesty's acceptance of a purse of crimson satin containing a thousand marks in gold and withal beseeched her to continue good and gracious lady and queen to them the queen's majesty took the purse with both hands and readily answered i thank my lord mayor his brethren and ye all and whereas master recorder your request is that i may continue your good lady and queen be ye assured that i will be as good unto ye as ever queen was to a people after pausing to behold a pageant of deborah who governed israel in peace for forty years she reached the temple bar where gog and magog and a concert of sweet-voiced children were ready to bid her farewell in the name of the whole city the last verse of the song of farewell gave a hint of the expected establishment of the reformation farewell o worthy queen and as our hope is sure that into error's place thou wilt now truth restore so trust we that thou wilt our sovereign queen endure and loving ladies stand from henceforth evermore. Allusions to the establishment of truth and the extirpation of error had been repeated in the previous parts of this song, and whenever they occurred, Elizabeth held up her hands and eyes to heaven, and at the conclusion expressed her wish that all the people should respond, Amen. As she passed through Temple Bar, she said, as a farewell to the populace, be ye well assured, I will stand your good queen. The acclamations of the people in reply exceeded the thundering of the ordinance, at that moment shot off from the tower. Thus ended this celebrated procession, which certainly gave the tone of Elizabeth's public demeanor throughout the remainder of her life. End of section 10